Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Halloween edition. We are talking Halloween 2 today. <laughs> My name is Michael Schantz. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. With me on this journey through Halloween, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Hello, Tom. Amazing Grace. Come sit on my face, gonna make me cry, I need your pie. It's a new segment of the show called, When Improv Goes Wrong. <laughs> Although Car- John Carpenter claims to have been drunk when he wrote the screenplay, so maybe that's that's where it comes from. Do you know why he was drunk? Because he didn't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> he thought there wasn't a story left, which I actually disagree with him about. I think the story. I, I think the story left. To, that's the reason he gave. He says there's no story left to tell. I think that. Yeah, I think there is a story. I left think to you're tell. right that he's wrong. <laughs> I think he's right that he just had to go and keep it too honest, keeping his main character. Basically comatose throughout this entire fucking She's movie. She's in a bed for a third of the movie. That's the that's my biggest quibble against this movie, and one of the reasons I ended up going four above two. I mean, only Charlie Bucket's grandparents beat that record in cinema, right? <laughs> <laughs> what what something? I mean, bringing it right up to date. You know, we now because since we since we've kind of semi rebooted Halloween again, which we're going to mm-hmm. talk about next year. So stay tuned. <laughs> Actually, don't stay tuned for a whole year. That's not that'll wear down your phone battery. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, Halloween Kills is essentially, for all intents and purposes, the Halloween two of this new Halloween trilogy that we have now. And yeah, and, but and I'll the, push and back the tra- on that a little you, bit because and I've heard that all of those movies are direct sequels to the first right. Movie. But ignoring that, it, you know that one's also called Halloween. It's something of a reboot. We'll we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah, if you yeah, if yeah. you sort of parallel the two, and you know you know that the pro that David Gordon Green's project is we you know we don't famously he's like you don't want to make the mistakes of Halloween two. It's like. The trailer seems to suggest Jamie Lee Curtis is back in the hospital. <laughs> so, uh, careful. <laughs> you may have reproduced one of the biggest mistakes of Halloween 2. Right. I My problem isn't going to the hospital, though. My I problem that is sense from she's in that bed episode, which... for a third of the fucking episode. <laughs> I got that sense from our movie from the, from the 
well, it was a long episode too. I got that sense from the ranking episode, and I just can't imagine. But no, actually, no, I agree with you. It's not a bad idea to be in the hospital. You just need to get out of there quicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I don't dislike hospital in Halloween movies because my favorite is Halloween 3, which is hospital heavy. <laughs> hospital forward, one might say. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are here to discuss... Halloween 2, a 1981 movie, mostly directed by Rick Rosenthal. <laughs> what a nice way to put it. I'm, 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 I think Rick Rosenthal would like that tribute there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's directed movies such as Bad Boys, Ruskies. He does come back to this series with Halloween Resurrection. So wait a year and we'll talk about that. <laughs> This Long movie has thirty-two from everything. <laughs> this movie has thirty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh, ha- I know that's rough. I think the Rotten Tomatoes score, the Rotten Tomato score for Halloween two and four are criminally low. But we'll get to it. Well, I understand. I understand it more with Halloween two, but. I can't imagine what anyone holds against Halloween 4 anyway. <laughs> well, and I agree with you completely about Halloween 4. I don't get how these two movies aren't higher, but let's talk. So this movie had a budget of just $2.5 million, an opening weekend of $7.4 million, in the USA and the world, $25.5 million, which also feels low to me considering the mega hit at least compared to budget, that Halloween was. You'd think people would be lining up to see this movie at least that opening weekend. Well, it's... it's a, And this movie's not bad enough to, like, not get people to go see it. There may, I mean, there's a couple of, fa- of historical factors there, I think. Um, for instance, the fact that three other major horror franchises had sequels in 1981. The Exorcist, yeah. The Omen, and... What's the other one? Wasn't there another... Oh, wait, maybe not. I was going to say Friday the 13th, but no. Could be. Did they go back to back? Anyway, that's something for you to look up at home. Um, <laughs> and also, we're sort of getting into the... Uh, like, the, the you know, the original slasher phase is kind of dying out a little bit. Certainly, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, thought this was going to be her swan song in the genre. So maybe there's a little bit of little bit of fatigue and oversaturation of the kinds of movies that these were in 1981. That's my best explanation for it. Um, maybe because in terms of quality, I think there's certainly another you know set people are talking. Well, and so let's talk about this. I'd like to start with one. A couple of things. One. <laughs> Appropriately for a this sequel movie, podcast. Yeah. This movie, does this movie have the biggest retcon in the history of cinema? Ooh, go on. With the connection of brother-sister? Oh, yes. I mean, that's huge. I thought you were talking about the extra gunshot 
at the at the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> okay, you know. no, yeah. I was I was like, I don't know, that seems pretty minor to me. Um <laughs> Well, maybe we should start at the beginning because we, we have the very sequel thing of seeing the last scene from the <laughs> Yeah the first it's, movie. It's more than a scene. I would say it's a chunk. It's a We're chunk. still in that period. But also they cut like they cut seeing his face. Yes. They cut the angle of his fall off balcony yeah. he's clearly also on a ramp right. <laughs> um they change it from the back of the house to the front of the yeah. house and there are also seven shots instead of six right so there's a lot going there's on there's a lot going on but um it's interesting because in in if you look at sequels from before this it's very common to to rather than have like a recap montage or flashbacks you start the sequel with a big chunk at the end of the last movie, <laughs> like right. up to like fifteen minutes worth of it. No, it's no, not no, 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 no. But other movies do that. Oh, okay. I'm saying like it's quite typical that you'll see this. You know, like a it's like a good. I think it's about eight minutes or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, what you're talking about looks forward more to Back to the Future Part Two and what they did. Where they they sort of like they use the recap of the end of the right. of the previous movie to um, change things that uh, get you know that right. you know that are going to screw things up for them going forward. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Except, I mean, and you know, but there's something. There's also something a little sacri- um, sacrilegious about altering the ending of the original Halloween. But I don't know. I find yeah, right. I, I find it quite ballsy in a in a fun way to sort of say, I don't care what you did. This is my movie. Yeah, right. And I think that's what Carpenter sort of <laughs> really resented about Rick Rosenthal's overall approach to the movie. That it wasn't respectful of the original. Mm. And in the end I think that's why he took the movie away from him. Alright. Also this is true for me on one point more than the other, but do you have a huge Mandela effect for this movie at all? <laughs> That's such a loaded question. If I don't, if, <laughs> if I don't know what the Mandela effect is, how do That's I know I'm Mandela affecting it? <laughs> well, I thought you're so savvy, Tom. I just figured you'd know in- inherently, uh. but I think a lot of people Mandela affect the idea that, that Laurie Strode and Michael Myers are actually brother and sister into the first movie, which is not true. It's an invention of this movie. And again, biggest retcon maybe ever. Which has been been unretconned now. Yeah, exactly. And ret-retconned. Yeah, And also, uh, how about Mr. Sandman? I love the Mr. Sandman. In this movie. Oh, me too. So it's such a postmodern musical choice mm-hmm. to begin what is a fairly conventional horror movie of the time. Yeah, right. Like the way that that music counterpoints the menace of what you're going to see, it's hyper real, it's nostalgic, it's almost Lynchian, which is extra weird because yeah, David right, Lynch right. was considered. Was... Approached to direct this movie. So even though he didn't direct this movie, the movie begins in a way that he might have begun it <laughs> if he was in charge. <laughs> right. It's exactly. It's like exactly like something out of Blue Velvet. 
before Blue Velvet. Well, and that's to say nothing of the fact that of the three major horror franchises, doesn't that song fit Nightmare on Elm Street better? Because it has yeah, no dreams? but... You know? I, I, I Again, that, that's what's great about it is the, you know... But as it hadn't... It didn't exist yet. Like, <laughs> they just beat him to the punch, so... <laughs> I, think, I think the kind of dislocation of sign and signifier here is what I love about it. It's working mm-hmm. in, like, a really purely postmodern way. It's like, it's exactly what you don't expect... And it creates its own counter-reality to what you're seeing on the screen. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, me too. But the signs are that maybe Rick Rosenthal wanted to make a bit more of a... bit more of a kind of... bizarre movie than we actually ended up with. So maybe that is like a remnant of uh, of a stranger movie that uh, yeah. never got made. Which I think there are hints of later on as well. There's some batshit stuff that happens in this movie. I'll say. I'll tell you what's not batshit, though. Mm. Those opening credits. Yeah! The pumpkin splitting open with the skull inside? I fucking love that. It's great, and... and it's so good. It gives the movie real legitimacy. You know? Like, they... Because it signals that they're going to play with the imagery of the original movie but they're not gonna simply remake the original because mm-hmm. it does something different with what is essentially the same the same art, thing artwork right. concept at least yeah um and that's how you know that's how the first third of this movie rolls it's like just different enough and just similar you know but but similar enough but harkens yeah. to the original right yeah because and all of that is to do with the kind of real-time picking up from where we mm-hmm. left off. You know, it just feels... Which John Carpenter did not want no, to do wanted, in any way, shape, or Laurie form. To be, he wanted to be contemporaneous and Laurie to be the age she that Jamie Lee Curtis is now and in college. Right. Um, pro- I mean... I hate saying this, but... Uh-huh. Because it goes against two of my least favorite things one of which is rob zombie and the other one is time lapses but <laughs> i think given how given how this movie peters out as it goes on the way that you know it it, it sort of dwindles into almost nothingness you could slap a big time lapse in the middle of the movie and do what rob zombie did and have like half the movie the night after and then have a completely separate second half of the movie. I think that would actually work for this. You could basically make half of it Halloween 2 and half of it Halloween 4 and I think it would be a, the perfect sequel. Perfect Halloween sequel. Interesting. Which Rob Zombie did, however he did not make the perfect Halloween sequel Poorly. because he is inept. <laughs> wow. Sorry. I mean... Pulling <laughs> no <I'm> not, punches. <laughs> can't sugarcoat it. Doesn't know how to direct. Wow. You don't want to be in one of his movies. No, I don't even want to be in his band, which is his real job. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about him. But uh, yeah, save it, save it, save, save it, it, save it. Someday, and I think single sequel. But I mean, I I do wonder if the fact you know, it's hard to tell because we know that Carpenter reshot a lot of what Rick Rosenthal did. 
And so I spend the... F- Do you really think it was a lot? I thought it was... Three three days worth. I thought it was... Plus, re- plus re I thought it was some pickups. And he filmed... Yeah, he, he did a lot of... Re- yeah. And he filmed whole new sequences that weren't in the movie. Like... Okay. Um... So I spend the first third of the movie wondering who, you know, what, who did what, who did kind what? of Richard Lester, Richard Donner situation. Right. Uh, but it's win-win because, you know, you know, Rosenthal's approach is original, but Carpenter trying to drag it back to the template of the original movie is also good because it's John right. Carpenter and he knows what he's doing with Halloween, but Rick Rosenthal yeah. wants to go another way. So you just, it's just like a tennis match between the two of them. And the only winners are us. Because we're getting two really interesting cinematic points of view. Right. Uh, But eventually... Well, and so, can I ask you this? One of the things that uh, detractors for this movie kind of famously talk about is we we have Dick Warlock as the shape. If ever a man had a name (laughs) that was meant to be... (laughs) In a Michael Myers movie. Dick Dick Warlock. Warlock. Yeah. You're not wrong there. Carry on. But he he famously uh is it it's Kathleen wait. Not Kathleen Kennedy. Deborah Hill? Deborah Hill. Thank you. Uh Deborah Hill, who's also producing. Yeah. Was famously on set on almost every day and yeah. And he he kept coming up to her and saying, am I doing okay? Do you like how Michael's moving? And she said, oh, yes, it's fine. And then the movie came out and she said, Michael moved too slow. It ruined the movie. This is it's yeah. why the movie didn't work. I, speaking about the difference between Rosenthal and Carpenter, one of my big takeaways of this movie was how much that worked for me. Yeah, I agree. And it it gave a, a sense of suspense mm-hmm. and tension and dread when he's actually finally chasing Laurie Strode throughout the hospital mm. uh, that I realized on this viewing that I had I, I had never clocked before that every time I watch this movie, it affects me physically. Oh, interesting. Where, where I'm like hopping up and down in my seat yeah. saying, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out <laughs> as he's slowly moving towards her. And it really does give a sense of foreboding in this movie that I love that I think works. Interestingly. And this, this, this is very typical of how we, we both love the Halloween sequels, <laughs> uh huh, but we come from totally different angles that what you just described doesn't work for me like those like applied to those set pieces doesn't work for me but what really 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 works for me and it is still about the slowness of michael mm-hmm. i could watch a whole movie of michael myers wandering Walking around Haddonfield. <laughs> okay because yeah. it's like a first person video game uh-huh yeah right and all those sequences, I'm just like, I'm mesmerized. It feels genuinely experimental. Like, you know, Michael is Michael is the camera. Michael is the steady cam. Right. He's just going to walk around, not necessarily do anything. 
but we're going to see it, see everything from his perspective. And and we're going to see people around him. Yeah. Not taking note. Did you notice that I thought there was one great shot that I'd really never noticed before? It's right before he turns up the sidewalk where it says hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, I do remember that. It, that that's definitely a carpenter scene. I can, I yeah, can, I can give, I can tell you that for a fact. He's walking towards the corner, <laughs> and a cop car passes. But the cop car passes right as he's kind of behind a tree, mm-hmm. and then he turns left and he goes up the road. I loved that. Yeah, I really like, like you said, that kind of shit was mesmerizing to me. Yeah, and it, it's. It's in. It's right. You know. It's right on that in that perfect kind of Venn diagram between the style of the original and taking that to a new level. Mm-hmm. Because you know we get a lot of Michael point of view and Steadicam in the original, but here it's kind of raised to almost absurd levels. Right. Where a good right. a good third of Michael's action in the movie is him sort of wandering around Haddonfield with the camera on his shoulder. Yeah, and exactly. You know, but again, like, you know, and I have, a, I, again, I have a, I have a, an anecdote exactly the same as what you were saying about Deborah Hill's hypocrisy, because I assume a lot of this is actually directed by Carpenter given how it looks stylistically. Mm. Um, and yet he again disowned it in, you know, in, in interviews. He said, uh, oh no, it was, so he, so, yeah, so, so Rick Rosenthal said he really liked the, um, no, I'm getting, I'm getting my anecdotes confused. So, <laughs> so what it ends Take up... Take your time. Take your time. It ends up with the mur- with the murder of a teenager which John Carpenter didn't like. No. I was right the first time. Will you get your shit together, please? So John Carpenter <laughs> came in and had, and and just from scratch, directed a scene where Michael murders a teenager completely unrelated to anything else that's going on. The first Rick- murder. Hmm? The first murder. Yeah, I'm the so. first murder. Yeah. Because there was a complaint. The, the studio said we don't have a, you know, like a good first kill. For like a long period of the movie, and I think it is a good first kill. I think it's a very good first kill, and it was directed yeah. by Carpenter. But Rick Rosenthal thought that it offset the um, the idea that Michael was after Laurie. Gotcha. Because the only person unrelated to Laurie that he kills. So everyone's working at cross purposes here. Wow. And yet, and yet, you know, I don't feel that disjointedness that you would assume comes because i think they're all good that's an intellectual argument from rosenthal that makes sense yeah but something that i never in all the years of watching this movie have clocked or thought about right which gives you the idea of and it's the best and it's the best part of the movie right that john carpenter knows what he's doing I think Rick Rosenthal knows what he's doing as well, but just the I two agree. of them could never two of them could never get on the same could, page. Could get on the same page. Alright, well let's let's take a break there and then we'll come back and we'll we'll keep talking Halloween too. How about that? Sounds good. Alright. Right after this, everyone. 
I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 1981 film Halloween 2, somewhat directed by Rick Rosenthal. <laughs> it's getting less and less the more we talk about it. <laughs> well, you seem to be you seem to be upping John Carpenter's involvement more and more. I really had the idea based on my research that he came back to to get some things to add um so some added scenes and some style points maybe but well he took i mean he removed an entire subplot of the movie what's that um you see traces of it uh the television news crew mm-hmm. the television original... news crew by the way did you know that dana carvey dana carvey yeah. yes it was in my credit check yeah, yeah absolutely so that's how he began his career in, in Halloween 2 and then playing a mime in This Is Spinal Tap. There you go. <laughs> which is weirder. Um, yeah, so the the the, uh, the original way that Michael found Laurie in the hospital was uh, through the TV news crew. He latches onto them, hides out in the news van, kills the uh, the on-air reporter on the way, and uh, drives the rest of the way to the hospital. Oh, okay. Um, and this version, Carpen we have the boy with the radio. <laughs> the yeah, which I, I you know I, I will say narratively that's a better way for him to find that out than on a a young boy's boombox. Mm -hmm. Fortuitously, <laughs> right? I have no problem with that scene. A lot of people do, you know, uh, not not least because it suggests. Uh, Haddonfield is this sprawling metropolis <laughs> with a with a downtown area. Um, but yeah, so uh, so there was there was some pretty big changes, and um, uh, it was basically a case of Carpenter was never going to be happy with whatever came out of it. But so I think he just he pegged Rosenthal as his. Uh, Patsy, really, yeah, for right. everything that was wrong about the movie. I wonder if that affected... Did he talk shit about it before or while it was out? Probably not. That doesn't seem like something he would do, but... No, I think, I think everything has been subsequent, yeah. Okay. Well, uh... narratively, we get to the hospital, of course, 
and yeah. as we as previously mentioned, our hero is in a bed, almost comatose for a third of the movie. But we are introduced to all these new characters. There's a great uh, before we before we get to that uh, that subs bench uh-huh. that you just mentioned. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I noticed that as she was being sedated. Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie says, please don't put me to sleep, mm-hmm. which I think is good advice to the screenwriters. Yeah, right. I know, right? And she also has a line later on where she says, why me? Another good question. <laughs> that the screenwriters will come up with, well, that John Carpenter will come up with. Right. The wrong reason. But that was, yeah, um, that was part of the menace of the first movie was that there was no reason. Yeah. We'll get we'll get there we'll get there. So I I think like one of one of the one of the down like the there's there's pros and cons to setting the movie immediately after the fir- the first movie and continuing on in in more or less real time. Um, the pros of, is which you you know you gen you do something which Carpenter says there isn't and there is which is kind of development of the characters. Mm-hmm. Like the way that Loomis grows from like expert and authority figure to out of control out loose of cannon control. anti-hero by the end of this movie. That guy was gonna shoot a child. <laughs> but, and he killed Ben Tramer. Well, not technically. No, he killed Ben Tramer. You're not gonna convince me that death was not his fault. You're right. But also, the cop that ran Bennett. Known yeah. as Ben Tramer over, that guy's got to go to jail. Yeah, that's true. He that's came true. out of nowhere? Bullshit. You were going at a high rate of speed, and that kid was out on that road for a while before you started breaking. And he clearly had 50 tanks of petroleum yeah, in his backseat exactly. in order to create an explosion that big. Anyway, uh, I also love, and this, you know, one of my, one of my, the great disappointments of this movie is that, um, uh, what's his name? Sheriff Brackett. Out of out of uh, commission. Yeah, because he and Loomis are just their chemistry is just it's like great. clicking along. It's so good. Um, I'll tell you that blonde guy though, Hunter Von Lear, I think his name is. Yeah, he's good. I like him. But there's nowhere really for the I, dynamic I agree to go about the chemistry. I don't think that yeah. he has great chemistry with Loomis. But as an but actor, no, also no I like for him the dynamic to go. Yeah, it's just like. It's like the police are just like, yeah, we'll give you whatever help you want, mm-hmm. because all even if it, even if they even if they did that eventually with Bracket, it would have felt earned because we've seen them yeah. kind of tussle. You know, we've seen them tussle. I but, guess maybe I gravitate towards the the blonde cop because every other cop in this series is like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, this town's fine oh. without you. And he hears one thing. He's like. He could still be out there, and he goes, "All right, let's go back out." He does the yeah. sensible cop thing. <laughs> it is it's just not very dramatically interesting. Right. There's not much conflict in there. Right. But so, but the, the, so there's there's definitely good. There's definitely great, and and you know it just keeps it keeps the story clicking along for for a good long time mm-hmm. before it finally runs out of steam. One of the the downsides is that because you're dealing with the aftermath. You have to involve the police. You have to have Laurie in a semi-injured state. Right. And the movie has to involve EMTs in some way. 
<laughs> that's the kind of narrative. That's a narrative hamstring. But it gives us the, the last Starfighter, Tom. Lance uh, Guest these, repeating these guy, on the I show mean, from Jaws Four to Halloween Two. Let's go. This is where I side with Helen Carpenter because these were the the the, EM, the the hospital staff were all Rosenthal ringers that were cast in spite of how way that they were described in the script. Mm-hmm. Because Rosenthal just wanted some people on set that were on his side. Right. And I don't know about you, but this is the B team for me. Well, Leo Rossi, he apparently had to, the guy who plays Bud, yeah. he apparently had to really fight for or something like that. Like he insisted on him getting a part. Yeah. And none of what happens in the, none of how this hospital works makes sense to me. No one knows what they're doing. And what about Mrs. Alves? I, I, I also don't understand really their purpose in the movie, except to sort of drag drag things out. No, well, their purpose is to die. That's what they're there for. Right, but they just didn't like never compelling. Well, that's the problem is that those characters are never going to rise to the level that the characters in the original did for us. Yeah. So they're always going to pale in comparison. Having said that, I don't think I hate them quite as much as you do. But... It feels feels more like... I don't think it's the actor's problem. I think it's the script's problem. (laughs) It's a a, a combination. I mean, mean, do you think they're all terrible actors? I don't know. I don't. I really don't know. It's just. It's just a very strange turn of events. Mm-hmm. It does. It. I mean, I'm not saying you, you should. You should just remake Halloween, but you should at least keep it within the genre and the demographic. And these, first of all, you know that it's probably the first instance in our in a kind of slasher horror movie where everyone is cast younger than they should be. Right. Because these these all feel like they're way too young to be to doing, be doing the, job. the job that they have. <laughs> yes. With no senior supervision. Right. Apart from... Except one drunk uh, doctor. <laughs> apart from, yeah, our, our first foreshadow of Dr. Daniel Chalice, which is the, the right. drunk partying doctor who arrives with a black coffee in his hand. Yeah. Um, and it's just... It's just a... You know, I have notes like, is this hospital for real? Mm-hmm. There's one nurse who knows anything about what's going on. And that's Gloria Gifford's character. Correct. Mrs. Alves. Um, right. And then we've got the Oliver Hardy security guard. Right. It's a, you know, as Dan- Dr. Daniel Chalice says of the motel in Halloween 3... This place is a zoo. <laughs> and not a very good zoo. Certainly not San Diego Zoo. No. <laughs> it's not that it's not at that level. Um Yeah, I I don't know what I'm supposed to be investing in these people, I suppose. So that's the only problem to me is that Yeah. The, uh, 
I think the only person you really can invest in even remotely is Jimmy because he seems like the only fairly decent person in the on the staff. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. All right. Fairly decent. Okay. It's 19 This is I'm reading okay, direct I think quoted I know from where my you're, notes. You're probably right. It's 1981. <laughs> so there's some unchecked sexual predator behavior as Jimmy touches Laurie without her consent. <laughs> This is someone you have described as a fairly decent guy. The first thing we see him doing is putting his hands all over a mm, unconscious Jamie. Well, be specific, though. You make it sound like he's feeling her up. He is. He's not grabbing her boobs. Well, but she's asleep. She's she's asleep. I mean, he's one step away from that guy in Kill Bill. If she hadn't awoken up, who knows what would have happened? Okay. But All it's I'm saying is he, so... he is set up to be the kind person in this movie. But he's played and written as an idiot. Like a slapstick idiot. <laughs> he fall, He slips and falls on blood and has a worse head injury than anything that Laurie sustains from being pursued well, by a serial Well, it's a lot of blood, killer. Tom. Huh? That's a lot of blood. He's... And doesn't and he, he sort of end. <laughs> I don't know what happens to really happens to Jimmy in the end, but he what he passes out in a car. Is that what happens to him? Yes. So, however, that's the last we've seen of him. That that's the last you see of him. There is another scene of him that's cut from the movie. I yes, but it's for the movies. It's it's for the the greater good for sure. Yeah, they wanted another jump scare at the end. Yeah. So in the ambulance when... <laughs> but having Jamie Lee Curtis's haunting look yeah. be the last shot, that's the right choice, which actually leads perfectly to her character as she stands in H2O. Yeah. That's what you want to end the movie on. But interestingly, speaking of Mandela effects, I I guess because I, I assumed that this character who you spend a great deal of the movie with would not just pass out in a car and never be seen again. <laughs> I Mandela affected that he was in the ambulance at the end. He is. And said something to her. He is. But that does not happen. It does not happen, but that, but it that was, was the scene But there was, was a cut. scene filmed where yeah. he he jumps, you know, he, he just comes, gets he, up. He wakes up and she thinks it's Michael Myers, but... It's Jimmy and she screams and then she says, Jimmy, we made it. We did it. Yeah. And to me, that's the ending of the movie, whether it is or it isn't. So <laughs> what's the use in cutting these scenes? The other thing that they cut out was the power going out in the hospital because yeah, at a certain point, you're like, <laughs> as an audience member, I'm, I'm saying to myself, turn the fucking light on. Why are yeah. all the lights off? But and, um, it's unexplained within the movie that you see that the power went out. Which I believe was at the request of the cinematographer, Dean Cundy, who also was cinematographer on Psycho 2, one of our previous episodes, who, because hospitals are so well lit, he didn't think they made for good horror. So he needed an excuse to to put the lights down low. However, given, given that they cut that from the movie character, you know, it's <laughs> right. just dark for no reason. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so it's interesting. I mean, 
I agree with you completely about the hospital staff. There's no reason for us to care about them. And they're all they're all sex obsessed. True. But that's They're all like that was like part high of, school kids. That was part of the mandate, I think, of Yeah. of you know making this a, a slasher film that you know, yeah. we wanted more blood, we wanted more boobs. And boy, we got and, more and of thing, both. And thing, you know, the hot tub scene you know points to that pornographic turn in the in the series, because mm-hmm. you get bo- you get boobs and blood, yeah, in in one set piece. Um, boobs on a overheated, melted face. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, I I I understand that. I understand that. I what what never sinks for me is why all <laughs> why these hospital workers are acting like high school kids and are so obsessed with having sex with each other because they're all in their 20s yeah but it i don't know it's like it's not and they're i mean you're right like they they're too young to have the jobs that they have but and why why no one's going you know why 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 the they're um there's no there's no their attending isn't coming in right. every five minutes going, get, get back to fucking work. Get to work. The so, only person she's doing that for is Jimmy. Because Jimmy, like you said, he's always sneaking into an underage woman's room. You're right about that. But So it doesn't feel like but an There's also like place. there's no reason for Karen to be interested in Bud at all. I don't know. I don't know where that relationship came from. Yeah. So there's lots of, there's, you know, there's lots of narrative pieces missing within the hospital itself. I don't even think it's that. I think it's just like, they, 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 you, you go into the hospital and as that's, you think it maybe will be like a set piece. And then you, you have that sinking feeling no this is where we realize yeah. you're gonna spend the rest of the movie in there yeah like like i said the problem is not going there the problem is staying there mm-hmm. for so long like literally right to the end of the movie because i think you could have broken up this movie into thirds you could have like the first third is everything leading up to the hospital then you got the hospital in the middle and then there could be some other location um but where where do you take an injured person who belongs in a hospital? <laughs> well, why did you sedate her? Right. I mean, like, and even that, you know, they even have but to. But the sort thing of, like, is, too, like, gloss over that towards the end because she has to get away. The thing is, too, is John Carpenter seemed hell bent on, like, he he could choose the degree to which she was injured. It does seem that way. Yeah. And by the way, it's not like it wasn't a full break of her foot. No. She had a crack in the bone. So it's not like she needed to be sedated for the crack in the bone. Once again, what is done to her in the hospital does far more harm to her than anything that Michael previously did in the last movie. You know what's some of the biggest horror moments in this movie? Like when they stick needles in her and her blood goes into the syringe and then they push it back in. 
That stuff's hard to watch. You've got, you know... I've got notes breath, here that says... Coffee breath alcoholic doctors. Yeah, exactly. Sticking, randomly shoving needles into veins or arteries or whatever looks like that through crossed eyes. I got needle blood, some of the best horror. <laughs> yeah, the sir- and the syringe stuff is genuinely good horror. Yeah. The syringe kill is, is one of the, the highlights at, at the mo- of the movie. Yeah, for sure. So... Speaking of that I doctor, suppose, if su- you look at the, the deleted scenes of that doctor working, you'll be even more alarmed. <laughs> what, does he, like, accidentally inject himself or something? No, it's not that, but, it, I mean, he, it's like he's getting everything done the way he wants it, and I guess ultimately right, but but it, he looks so shaky that you're, you're, you're thinking, oh, my God, he's got to be injecting an air bubble into her brain. I think the more we talk about it, this is more the side of the hospital that I want to see. Mm-hmm. Because um, there's a scene where she's freaking out again after she wakes up the first time and they put her under again. And I believe that's when the lights go out. <laughs> it's it's so it's so interesting because that's that is a nice holdover from the first movie. The fact that, you know, uh, Laurie's because Laurie's parents um, are at the same country club. Right. Yeah. Events that this doctor was at. So all the parents in Haddonfield are drunk and out of commission. And I like that they brought that element in, but it doesn't really it doesn't really sort of go anywhere. No, it doesn't go anywhere. And it, it's again, it's just a, it's just a narrative excuse to keep um, Laurie's parents away. Where and which becomes even more important when you find out <laughs> they've been keeping a secret from her for her whole life. life. <laughs> except that one time her mom, except that one time her mom got angry and just blurted out that she was adopted. Well, yeah, and all it's like, and we learn that through the uh, exposition dream. Almost as it's almost as if they knew how bad an idea this was by the the terrible way that they executed it. Yeah. It's almost like say, a story a story point this bad deserves deserves the line I told you I'm not your mother. <laughs> deserves this kind of terrible execution. <laughs> and I believe that the, the the broadcast cut of the movie flipped it around. So that wasn't the so um Loomis found out about it first, and mm. then we had the dream, which I don't know if that makes it better, but there's less emphasis on that dream as as the twist. As the twist, which I think is as a big problem. Interesting. Um, but what I suppose, and, and you know, I'm being unfair because we're not just in the hospital; we're also in. Well, we're following the, the case with Loomis. Yeah, we we're going to see the the. Deputy from Amity Island, we're gonna we're gonna go to the school and hear Sam Hain for the first time, right? And hear a, a wonderful monologue from Donald Pleasance in the in the back of the car. Yeah, before before he go finally goes rogue. Yeah, right. He's he's Daniel Craig's James Bond until the rest of, <laughs> for the rest of the movie, right? Yeah. What does a Jew boys do? Fire a warning shot. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, we'll have a lot to say about Loomis, but uh, I like his arc in these first couple of movies. No, absolutely. Because it, it doesn't feel like it really, you know, I think to sell the idea that we're, that we're continuing straight on from the end of the last movie, it has to feel like the characters are kind of carry over too. Yeah. And the character development carries over too. So we're seeing the roots of Loomis kind of uh, cracking in in the first movie like that the the i mean we're not here to talk about that but the amazing scene where he scares away a couple, couple of, of kids, kids by pretending to be a creepy guy in the bushes yeah. and you can see the lineage of that in him you know randomly firing a weapon uh, and cause randomly firing into the street causing the death of Ben Tramer <laughs> <laughs> well he doesn't fire he points and a and a cop uh, manages to to make him stop, but and then later in you know later in the movie he's he's just gone he's gone like I say he's gone completely rogue. Mm-hmm. He's no longer you know he's literally combating authority Jack Bauer style. Yeah. Um, and I think it works really well. And I can't. One of my big regrets is that that wasn't happening. That 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 doesn't happen with him and Loomis. That that isn't part of their relationship as well. And I think that's one of the ways in which this storyline's been kind of hamstrung because if you are carrying on, then Brackett has to be taken out of action early on because he's got his daughter's death to compete with. Right. And there's no real way to write around To write around that, exactly. He can't be going back to work. And sensibly, they don't have him, like, you know... Try to to push through. (laughs) Well, you know, they do that in action movies, don't they? It's like, no, I gotta be on the case. I gotta catch this guy because it's my daughter and it's personal now. But they actually just go... I can't do this anymore. Yeah. My daughter's dead. And I think that's great. But where it leaves you is not so great. All right. But, um... All right, let's take another break. And then we'll come back and we'll finish up talking about Halloween 2. Right after this. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound. But as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target. Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target. That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we are back once again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here, of course, still discussing Halloween 2, the hospital version of a Halloween movie directed by (laughs) Rick Rosenthal and John Carpenter. Let's just say it. Um, All right. It It sounds like this is like, the, there's like a movie 
you watch in your hospital bed. <laughs> right. And I actually can't think of a worse movie. That's, that's you would a watch terrible idea. In your hospital that's bed. Worst, that's just a terrible idea. Halloween two, the hospital cut. <laughs> Maybe that was the the version of Halloween Six that you saw was the hospital cut with all the violence. I perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Let me ask you this because this is the first time we're seeing Sam Hain, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to to only think about like how deep into this shit we go in the you know successive sequels, but yeah. when you see it in this movie. What are your what's your initial reaction to it? Well, my reaction. Do you like I mean, the mythology of it, or is it like, come on, Michael Myers is just Michael Myers? Yeah, well, I mean, it goes along with trying to sort of find a motivation. It goes along with the brother for, sister too. Yeah, it's like it goes along with the you know with the trying to, and I think that that John Carpenter was was writing this from the wrong position mm-hmm. he was like the only way we get story out of this is if we try to explain things right which he later admitted was a mistake but uh you can see that with the samane too it's interesting i mean it's interesting because also speaks to carpenter's desperation you know as the drunk screenwriter trying to trying to get a, a whole movie out of this that this is from the he pulled this from the the original movie's novelization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where the Sam Hain stuff comes from. Yeah, exactly. From. And also the first scene of this movie that, that we've already quoted that you don't know what death is that comes that comes from, from the, the book too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, uh, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's it's gratuitous in the same way that the brother sister subplot is uh gratuitous but it definitely doesn't (laughs) as i I say that i'm saying maybe it is arguable that it does as much harm as uh as their brother sister's plot plot line does in future movies i don't know certainly not in halloween 3 but maybe in halloween 6 right um but it's yeah i mean it, it makes the next movie look almost deliberate <laughs> right, because you 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 re- it feels like you're because be- basically that Sam Hain monologue, Sam Hain monologue that Donald Pleasance does is the core it's, plot of Halloween yeah it's 3. Co- yeah it's Connell Cochran yeah um so in those terms I I enjoy it but you know if you're going from this to Halloween four then it it, it does seem like uh, it does seem pretty unnecessary. All right. Well, and and it's in- it's interesting that they only picked it back up when they got desperate for material, mm-hmm. because I think that's what it was born out of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We've got to fill this movie to something to get it to nearly ninety minutes. Almost ninety minutes, right? Almost ninety minutes for a movie where you filled the first five minutes with the last movie. <laughs> to to a to, you know to a movie where someone slowly dials a telephone. Right. Well, and there's like we 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 talked about this before, but there's lots of slow walking. And I I find what one thing I find interesting about this movie is the number of times we see Michael walking on the video surveillance cameras so that 
I assume as audience members, we can't say, why can't anybody notice this guy fucking walking around? It's just, you know, it's just happenstance. Somebody's not looking at the camera or at the screen. They're talking to each other as he moves about. <laughs> it's interesting you should say that because this is my exact note. I don't quite think they're doing the good work they think they're doing with the closed-circuit television <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I have this general feeling in the later section of the hospital uh, scenes that I really do think they are literally trying to kill time under the auspices of suspense and dread. Well, and we seem... Like, it almost gets to the point of, like, stage farce. <laughs> is it is it Jimmy who's walking around going, I can't find anybody. Yeah, right. I mean and then what's the security guard you know, I, I Halloween five gets the gets the you know the rap for for bad comedy, but it starts here. <laughs> Having that closet fall out on him. Yeah, right. And the cat in the bin. I mean it's just it, re- it it feels like you know it's the it's the the lowest form of slapstick comedy used to kind of spackle over the fact that we don't have enough material in in these scenes i'll agree with that but i do like the hammer in the head yeah shout out the actual uh, kills are really let's, good let's talk shout out to sounds and cinema podcast and we'll talk to d-rock and tony parham the thud of that hammer the claw of that hammer hitting the head Woo! That's good sound work. It's good sound work. And you're right I'm about not... the other deaths. There are there are great, good, fun deaths in this movie. Yeah. Um, I have yeah, got no no including uh... off screen deaths. You know, yes. Alves. Which I'd like to know what. And again, I, just bleeding I think out. It's it's interesting. I like. I wonder how much the that thirty two percent rating is colored by what Carpenter said about this movie because he's been he's gone public with the comments that nah they wanted like a real slasher movie a gory slasher movie and um you know the first one was all restrained and it's like well it's definitely it's definitely more uh the the horror is more vivid in this in this movie Mm -hmm. more um it's it's you know it's more gory it's more of an exploitation movie but that doesn't mean there aren't these restrained moments in there and i think the syringe kill scene is like yeah. classic in that there's also the syringe fact that early on temple. in the movie early on in the movie we have a, a classic bait and switch that could have been straight out of the first movie where you think michael's gonna gonna sort of murder ruthlessly murder an elderly couple mm-hmm but he just steals the knife and then goes off and, and kills, kills, kills teenager a teenager later on. Right. So we do have that delayed gratification and all those things. So it's it's interesting when you sit down and watch the movie, you realize it's like, yes, this movie is, uh, is close. You know, sometimes gets close to the way it's stereotyped, but other times, you know, it's just a stereotype. Yeah. There's other things going on in the movie. It's a real mixed bag. But I still but say the, bag, the one thing the this delights. movie does well is build tension. 
and there are moments... Yeah, I think it works better in the earlier part of the movie, and I think in the second half of the movie, it's more about killing time, but overall, I'd agree I agree you. know, it still gets me, though. We do, I think we just differ on that. I like the yeah. stuff in the elevator. Um, despite how slow he's walking, it still uh, makes my heart pump. I don't have a problem with him walking slowly. I have a problem with the hospital workers walking, and Laurie <laughs> walking around the hospital slowly. Okay. In response to him, gotcha. That's my biggest problem. I don't have any. I think. I think, the idea of him as this kind of looming, <laughs> loomising, <laughs> loom, like looming menace on the movie is great. Yeah. So I. Um, I mean, I really love the elevator scene, and there are. This doesn't happen a lot. In, I can't think of a lot of horror movies where I see this. I love when she actually gets out of the hospital. She sees that all the tires have been slashed. Mm -hmm. She gets into a car and then Jimmy gets into the car. Yeah. And when Jimmy says, I think I, um," and he falls on the horn. And then there's that establishing shot of like how loud that horn is. That to me, I, you don't like that. I love that. I thought it was a little bit naked gun. Oh, get the fuck out of here. I put myself in Laurie Strode's shoes in the in that moment, and I think I'm fucked. <laughs> Plus, but the result of but the gets... result of that is also then she has she's just got out of the hospital and she has to go back into the hospital. This would have been the perfect time for her to leave the hospital. <laughs> but she goes back in. But I also love her falling out of the car, Loomis shows up and she's uh, almost too frightened to make speech with sound. <laughs> Where right. she's just saying, help me. I like that. And then the moment the door closes, she's screaming. I know a lot of people give this movie shit on that moment. I think it's great. It's a little bit like the, the Krusty the Clown said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. <laughs> Um, I I would say my overall note for how they portray Laurie in this movie is it's a shame she went back to being prey and right. this wasn't her opportunity I mean later movies will rectify this mistake, of course. but at this point there's no sense of her trying to get revenge on her, on her attacker but in order to make they have to make her significantly physically weaker in order for that to, to work. make sense yeah. But it's not organic to her character. The last thing we saw her do, and in the the first thing we saw her do yeah. in the in this movie, was uh, <laughs> was fight back against her attacker, yeah. and you know, be like the only person who can basically who can um, fight back against Michael Myers. And here she's just like wounded prey, and that's so. Anything that's related to that, I have a bit of a problem with. Although I do like how it lets Loomis step into the fray as early '80s action hit, mm-hmm. action cop hero, right? And the way he takes charge of things is probably one of my favorite scenes. Me too. I and it's so deliberate that they want to kill Michael in that moment. There's none of that wishy washy. Right. Is he alive? Is he dead? They they just wanted this to be done. Yeah. And. The only toying with the audience they do, given that they cut that scene where Jimmy comes back, is 
he gets up again and then he falls right down and dies. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I'm like, everyone involved with this wants it to end right here. But the whole end of this movie... I really like the whole end of this movie. I like the techno drum beat of John Carpenter kind of score when they actually start running, like when he kills the second cop. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I fucking love that. He should have just stayed a musician on this. (laughs) (laughs) You're just the (laughs) drum. So, John, we don't want you to write the script. We don't want you to edit the movie. We don't want you to produce the movie. We just want you to drum. Just get that for us. Thank you. Anyway, so but not but also like the uh the horn, like like Jimmy falling on the horn, I love that they go into this room and he puts Laurie in a corner and he's gonna sort of try to be the person that, that stands between her and Michael, and Michael mm-hmm. busts through the door and he steps out and there's nothing but a click for that gun. And of course, because Donald Pleasance is Donald Pleasance, you see the. It's again, again, it like I feel the horror for him of oh I'm fucked, mm. and the knife to the belly and falling down and. Yeah, you know, and, and, and of course later movies it's going to be hard to, um, disown, two shots to the eyes, but. <laughs> I had a lot of surgery. <laughs> yeah. It no people aren't afraid of me. Um, but they, the, the, and, the subsequent the movies that, don't know, care that Michael was shot twice in the eyes. <laughs> yeah, he survives about the same number of bullets that he did at the beginning of the yeah. movie. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the fact that they made, they sort of, given how much this movie has kind of like made melodrama out of the story by have with the brother sister connection mm-hmm. and the Samane stuff. I'm grateful that. You know, there's like a moment where they have to make a decision about whether Michael can be talked down yeah, and emotionally engaged with, and they firmly decide he can't be. Mm-hmm. And they even have a moment where Michael considers it and, and then, then still, still decides to Yeah, kill. exactly. <laughs> but they also have a scene where he's blind, swiping blindly across the room, which I think was supposed to be suspenseful. But, but it's not. To me, yeah. it's just comedic. I'll give you that for sure. But yeah. that's followed up by what I consider to be a very Terminator ending because you think, I mean, that explosion is so big that it actually put the actor on her ass, Jamie Lee Curtis. It was way bigger yeah. than they expected. And you can see mm-hmm. her fall down in the hallway <laughs> because of, you know, I, whatever. In the 80s, I guess they just didn't care about human life. <laughs> so well, they put their actor in danger. But well, so you well, think it's over. A... But when, yeah. that, again, another drumbeat of him walking out, even though he's clearly in a fire retardant suit. That's a great, that's a great, Jesus, yeah. come on, give me. Oh, and then he finally falls down. Oh, that's great. Well, and also, it, it, I mean, this, this, movie like many sequels is concerned with upping the ante and about a third of the way through the movie we had what seemed like the biggest possible explosion there could possibly be Mm -hmm. in in any movie so we have to you 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 have to beat that (laughs) 
that that's not just you know this isn't just any explosion this has to beat ben ben tramer fireball mm-hmm. um which is asking asking quite a lot um also i mean however we get there and whatever issues we have with that i like that they there's at least cohesion in the way that they that you know they end the movie in the morning of the next day right so it really feels like we you know the the movie the original movie and the sequel are two coherent parts, parts of, the of same a, story. one story yeah and it, it that it's cyclical uh, there's a sense of closure to it. We get Mr. Sandman again. Mm-hmm. We've we've broken out of Halloween, the day, right. the actual, the actual day. day. Of it's November first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I you know I I like all of that. Um, we get the cops talking about how many dead bodies. So you get the toll. <laughs> the kill count. Yeah, the kill count. Not only that, but he says so far. <laughs> the, the um it's like it's like they they can anticipate you know like future film nerddom mm-hmm. by putting the kill count in there right. it's like if they ever come up with any other screen slashers who are gonna you know compete for michael's title at least we've got the number in yeah there. there'll we probably be some sort of movie database i don't know uh if it'll be in a book <laughs> Or on computers, <laughs> but uh, in some kind of almanac yeah. <laughs> that uh, that Biff will, uh, elderly Biff will take back into the eighties and become Donald Trump. So yeah, I I I don't else. I mean, that's the thing about this movie and this series is that there's a lot of big fundamental flaws here. Mm-hmm. Still a really good movie. I know. With some phenomenal stuff in, and I think when this movie is phenomenal, it's as good as any of the Hall- ha- Halloween. I almost did Hollywood again. Halloween sequels get. Yeah. Um, it is not this. It is not the illegitimate sequel. No. Uh, that John um, Carpenter seems to think it is. Right, and I I do wonder whether you know that that uh, that kind of sabotage is really affected how people watch this movie which is i think a real shame that and jamie lee curtis's wig yes right that holds a lot of people back i mean that wig isn't the same color as the hair she had and they show the scene from the movie right so it's not you have you have i mean i know this is sort of like pre-vhs but in your own movie there's a reel of the previous movie <laughs> where you can see what a hair looks like and what color it is. <laughs> oh yeah, let's do our let's do our uh, in lieu of a credit check because we've covered everything. Let's do mask watch. Yeah. What do you? <laughs> yeah. I I've noticed I've I've noticed a tendency of this movie to uh, to not do too many close ups of that mask. <laughs> for for good reason. A lot, but of that's the a thing. lot of times we see Michael, okay, he's in long so shot. Here's the, or the camera is his here's eyes. Here's what's interesting. It's the original mask. Yeah, badly kept, I assume. I guess that's the famous story, is that Deborah Hill kept it under her bed and was a smoker, so that's why it has a yellow tint. 
and looks faded. In addition, <laughs> Dick Warlock, I uh, was a stockier man, and so it fit him weird. It does not look like the same mask. It doesn't. I I actually asked that question. Is is this is this the same mask? But um, I mean, do you hate it? No, I mean, I. It's, it's like weirdly it works because <laughs> because it's like it's it's like the mask would look after it's like your face would look after a long day. Right. <laughs> That's what I related yeah. to, and so within the context of this movie, which is like you know. Michael's pulling the night shift. <laughs> uh, it kind of like by the end, of, you, def- he's a little frayed that- at the edges. It definitely had to melt at the end. Yeah, <laughs> because there's no state it could go to before melting when you finally see mm-hmm. it. Right? It's just like it's like. In fact, I wonder if they just kind of breathed on it. They didn't have to do any kind of firework. They just sort of like. They just breathed right. on the mask and the oxygen just like melted, melted away. Oh, it's it's really it's really bad, but it just looks shoddy. But shoddy is quite a good look for this for this movie, movie yeah. And, I think it works uh, overall. Hold your horses! It gets yeah, because it's one of the better masks. <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in Halloween 4. I have Ooh. so many questions about what that mask is and where it came I from. I have more questions about Halloween 5. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that yeah. is one sloppy mask. Yeah. But uh, I like the fact that they shoot around it as well because that allows them to do some kind of interesting things stylistically. Um. Like seeing Mike, you know, seeing Michael's in a different mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Anything left for Halloween two? No, I don't think so. I mean, the movie's not that long. True. <laughs> we may have been talking about it longer than the running time. I know, right? <laughs> but we both like this movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's magnificent. I think it's great. And. Uh, it's the kind of movie where the the imperfections actually really help with the overall feeling of the movie. Mm. Like if it's like a real you said the hospital version of, of Hollywood. Yeah, it's it's that sort of that that feeling of being in a hospital or having to stay up all night is really how you should be feeling about this movie but that movie has that feeling like you can put yourself in the characters places of definitely that sort of grotty been up too long absolutely not feeling my best (laughs) kind of thing (laughs) but in a good way all right well ladies and gentlemen if you have something to add to uh halloween 2 by all means, let us know. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Please leave us a message at everythingsequel at gmail.com. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Michael Schantz. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. You'll be hearing from us next time for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Say goodbye, Tom. Get a dentist and meet me there in half an hour. <laughs> nice. All right. So long, everybody.